I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story in the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I am Abby Kinney, and joined with me today is our regular co-host, Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Welcome back, Chuck. Hey, Abby. So nice to talk to you. Thanks for doing this. Yes, always glad to have our weekly chats. <laughs> This one is going to be especially interesting because it touches on really a national conversation we've been having and one that I've been kind of wondering about myself. The article is called A Small Town Community Leads the Way in Energy Independence. It was published by Joe Matthews at KCRW, which is a local broadcasting station in California. It follows the town of Gonzales which is a small working class community in California that has been hit hard by electricity blackouts. The town has experienced a number of blackouts last year by the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, or PG&E. PG&E, yeah. (laughs) PG&E. So these electricity blackouts have been really bad for this community. It has caused a huge hit on their local economy, which is reliable on a consistent supply of energy to support its industrial industry and agricultural businesses. So in response to this, they are working to build the first municipal power grid, which I am really interested in hearing if you kind of have some understanding of how that works. It sounds like this would be the first municipally owned power grid, and it basically could tie into a larger system or it could stand alone by itself, which is really interesting. And this would be a huge investment for this community. The largest investment the community has ever made has been a $5 million street redesign. And that is nothing compared to the $7 million ticket that is associated with building out their own power grid. And although this is daunting, Gonzalez is really being brave and boldly trying to tackle California's most stubborn challenge, which is how to develop local sources of cleaner, cheaper, and more reliable power to compensate for their aging infrastructure system. So I'll admit that this topic of energy is pretty far outside my area of expertise, but I am fascinated by the idea of being energy independent. A few weeks ago when we were experiencing blackouts here in Missouri, I'm not going to lie, I looked into how much it would cost to have my own personal (laughs) generator. And I'm sure you already have one, Chuck. Um, Spoiler, (laughs) it is not cheap. No, it's not. uh, Yeah, it's not cheap, but perhaps a worthwhile investment to make. Um, A couple of years ago, we didn't have power for several days and we invested in a uh, kerosene heater just so that we could have heat in our house. And the past few years had have made me think about how we can just be, as a household, more energy independent in some ways. I kind of wonder, Chuck, if you could provide some background or or at least your perspective in how we got here from an energy standpoint. Why do we have energy blackouts in our society? Why do we have these utility companies that have not maintained these grids to the level that is needed to support the energy that 
supports our society. Can you provide a little bit of background there? I can. I have enough knowledge to be dangerous on this, but not like encyclopedic knowledge where I could write a book on it. I have done enough work in this realm to kind of have a sense of what's going on. While not disputing KCRW, I mean, one of the nation's greatest radio stations, by the way, KCRW is a great radio station. The city of Brainerd, I mean, my hometown has its own electric grid. This might be the first in California. I don't know. Maybe that's true. But I pay my bill to the Brainerd Public Utilities, which runs a dam that uh, creates hydroelectric power. Uh, It buys energy from the larger grid and then sells that back to us as residents. I think it has some other some other mechanisms of production too, I'm not sure. But it's it's very common, at least here in the Midwest, for cities to have their own electric utility. That is a very common approach. And th- that kind of stems back from basically the, the period of time when electricity first came into existence as an energy source. I mean, remember, we go back 120 years ago and no, no one had electricity. I, this is going to sound really dumb, but I remember growing up on the farm, uh, when my my neighbor got electricity for the first time, this was like the early 1980s. We lived on a farm that had power, had its own power. We're connected to the grid, uh, but he did not. And he was, you know, a mile off the road and it had to be run back and it was a big deal. But, you know, I remember when he got connected and it was, you know, quite remarkable. It was pretty, pretty big deal. I think there's three parts of this story. The first part, and I think the part maybe we should focus on, is the production part. Because if we start out in the early days of electricity, there was a kind of recognition that power production would be a distributed thing. You would have a windmill. You would have a local kind of grid. You would have a local system, uh, You know, maybe a small hydroelectric plant the way we had here. But this would not be something that would be done, you know, with a huge, large coal plant or a big, large turbine on a nuclear power facility. This would be something that would best be handled locally. And and the very first iterations of these systems were all very localized, either neighborhood-centric or community-centric kind of things. Obviously, in big cities, you had larger systems because, you, you know, you had more people. But in small towns and rural areas, I mean, it's very, very common to have just, you know, some type of small production facility. When we get to the New Deal, I think this is important, and I welcome people to push back on this because my point of view is a little tainted by, you know, my interpretation of, of history and the bottom-up versus top-down approach. But the idea of in the New Deal, and you see this in the Tennessee Valley Authority, you see this in other uh, hydroelectric projects that were done around the country. The idea was kind of twofold. One, we could do this more efficiently if we went big. And then two, we could also do this more equitably if we went big. In other words, my neighbor who got power in the early 1980s was not getting power. And the farm that I grew up on would not have had power in the 1930s and 40s and probably even the 50s because it was a remote rural place. And the way we could get power to all these remote rural places was to basically create this big, huge system, tax people for it, 
have the federal government kind of mandate that everybody be connected and then create in much the way that we've done to an extent with broadband today and with you know other telecommunication systems basically mandate that these large providers go out and provide the service everywhere i'll give you an example of how this plays out on the ground here in minnesota power companies are regulated and they're given a certain area and they have to provide power service within that area they can charge you know dollar amounts commensurate with the equipment that they have to provide so if you're 2 miles away and they've got to put in $30,000 worth of equipment to get to you, they can actually charge you that $30,000. But if a city comes along and the city says, uh, we're going to take over your area and we want to serve this area and we want to make this part of our service area, the regulated utility, the private utility has to give way to the city and allow them to do this. It was done that way because we were kind of making this local city-centric kind of power systems. Uh, here in Minnesota. What you see in other states is in many ways the exact opposite. It was the the larger systems that were given the precedent. This is PG&E, which has basically been given uh, almost a statewide monopoly in a sense on power. And they are mandated to provide it everywhere at essentially a certain rate. What this has done is it's kind of put all the, you know, it's a regulated utility, yes, but has put all of the the responsibility for power generation, as well as the responsibility for the power distribution into this one kind of sole entity that would then you know, be regulated by the states and in theory responsive to these oversight bodies, not necessarily the local communities or the people who want power. I think with all systems like this, what you end up with is you end up with the priorities of the large player kind of dominating the system. And we can look at it from the city standpoint. Uh, we want clean energy. We don't want blackouts. We want our people to have decent rates. You can also look at it from kind of, I think, what the larger environmental standpoint is now, which is we'd rather not have these large billion-dollar fixed costs in coal plants that need to run for 20 years before we phase them out and replace them with something new. We don't necessarily want to do uh, large nuclear power plants that you know cost billions of dollars and uh, require decades and decades of amortization to make good on. Uh, we want these electric companies to change what they're doing. And so there is this tension now that maybe the big top-down system wasn't the right way to go, but we're so far into it, how do you back out of it? The story out of California is an interesting model because it kind of gives a way for, let's say, communities of people to start to opt out. It still is a centralized system, and it still is different than you having a generator or you know, what, what we've seen a lot of people around here do, which is have your own solar panels and your own kind of home generation system and feed back into a responsive grid. It's a step that I think a lot of cities could take and would take if there were other good examples that they could follow. So you said a lot there. And I think the the biggest questions I have is around centralization and whether or not energy is something that should be centralized. We talk a lot about the idea of subsidiarity and thinking through what is the most what is the scale that something can be managed in the most competent way. 
And energy has always been something that I have kind of written off as something that's just managed at this large scale. And oftentimes you see that scale growing. I, I think our utility company was bought recently and it's part of an even larger system. So it, it has been a really big bet in our society. And it, it's interesting that we see this town now trying to advocate for a microgrid because this big bet is just not working out for them. However, at the same time, it is kind of a big bet in relationship to the size of this town. They're going to be spending a lot of money in order to set this up. And there's questions around whether or not every town can do something like this, although I am curious about this model and, and how it works. At the same time, when the larger companies or the larger system isn't working, you don't really necessarily have a choice. I mean, for them, they have this industry where they can't just stop production. I mean, it, it causes major setbacks to their economy, people's ability to work. So it's not something that they can that they can really have other options for. And it's interesting that these companies, you know, they're not really handled by a municipality or some government entity necessarily. They may be regulated, but they are essentially monopolies. And so when thinking about why aren't they maintaining their systems, it may be because they have no competition. If you have no competition, then you don't really have the feedback needed to force you to do your job well, it's difficult to really understand who is the best entity for managing this kind of system because it's so incredibly important. I think on one hand, looking at cities, we know that they don't manage their own infrastructure very well. Strong Towns talks about that all the time. Um, they have infrastructure that they already don't maintain very well. And so there's a little bit of a contradiction with managing energy use and energy production, is that something that a municipality is going to be able to handle? At the same time, investor-owned utility companies don't necessarily do a very good job at that either. So that there's a lot of, I think, contradictions that come up in this article and in questions about who is the best entity for managing this, because it is something that you can't really ignore. There's an issue with not maintaining streets, but at the end of the day, they fall apart and yeah, it's going to be horrible, but losing energy, I would argue, is you know sometimes a life or death proposition. Well, let's look at the economics of this because I, I think this is where the tension comes in between uh, the centralized system. If you are a large power company, you make money by selling power. So the amount of power that someone consumes in their house is directly relation to how much money you make, how much revenue you have coming in. And if you're a regulated utility, like if if you are here in the state of Minnesota, if you're XL Energy running, you know, what is largely a statewide electric utility, the state public utilities commission is going to set the percentage of your revenue that can be profit with the rest of it you know, go, they're going to set your rates for you based on on these ratios. They, you have a monopoly, so you can't price gouge. You can't, you know, drive up the price in tremendous amounts. But you do get a profit margin. That's part of the deal. So you look at this, and the incentive, in a sense, becomes to have you consume as much power as possible to pay for the big centralized 
production investment. We've got to cover the costs of this coal power plant. We've got to cover the costs of this nuclear power plant. The things that our electric grid or our electric system really needs right now are twofold. We need a more responsive grid that in a sense wastes less energy. You, you would be shocked to see how much energy is, is squandered just in the grid system itself, either run into the ground and not used or kind of like wasted off in a, in a kind of quasi-friction-like sense, you can think of as it flows through the system. These are all kind of distribution losses that these large power manufacturers kind of accept as a cost of doing business. The other part of this is that there's a certain level of energy efficiency, I think we would call it, or productivity. If you go back to the 1930s and you look at electric farm equipment, electric farm equipment was very energy efficient. It was ridiculously energy efficient because on a farm, you didn't have many sources of energy. You know, if you were going to use electricity on a farm, it was most certainly going to be from a local generator. And so you would want to reduce the amount of energy that your things needed. So everything from refrigerators to, you know, the equipment you would use on a farm, if anything had electricity, you would want to make that as energy efficient as possible. What you see after the the national you know, grid started to be put in and farms received power the same way that cities were receiving them through these big facilities, uh, that energy efficiency went away. There's no real incentive to bring it back. There's no real incentive that the electric companies have to either upgrade the grid, to make the grid give bonuses for energy efficiency, or to have actually like energy efficiency at the end with the user because the marginal cost for electricity is so small. Ideally, what should happen is that you would have the end user want to do things like run their dishwasher overnight when power was low. You would want them to not have every light on in the house during peak times. You would want to have variable pricing. These are all things that states have started to mandate and utility companies have started to do because they've been forced to do. And when they're forced to do it, they'll say, oh yeah, we want to do this because we're energy efficient. But it's really been a response to the fact that they can't build energy production as easily and as quickly as they used to. It's really hard to build a new coal plant. It's really hard to build a new nuclear plant. In fact, I think it's been decades since we built a new one. And I don't think there are any in the pipeline right now that I'm aware of that are going to be coming online. And so you have uh, kind of this shift to going back to what I think was the emphasis in the early electric age, which is how do we make things energy efficient at the user end? And then how do we connect what the user pays to what they actually use? How do we make that variable rate more expensive during peak times? and then cheaper during off-peak times. These are things that it doesn't matter if you do it locally, or it doesn't matter if you do it in a large sense. It's still the same issue. I know people who are completely off the grid. I've got, there's a few lake cabins up here where people have had a hard time getting electric run in, and so they, they go completely off the grid. And it's fascinating because they're very intensive about how they manage their power on site. They will shut off lights when they're not using them. They will, you know, I got this one friend who goes out and he turns his solar panel in different directions to get the right amount of sun because he was too cheap to buy the motor that turns it for you. 
So he goes out and does it. And he goes, if I get to do this, I run low in the middle of the night and they intensely manage it. I don't want to get to a point where everybody has to go out and move their own solar panel to intensely manage it. But we've so disconnected what people think of as using electricity from the actual costs and production. And that is really a, a byproduct of the separation between the user and the production with everything in between the distribution system and the efficiency of our electrical you know, appliances and the like, responding to not the feedback of the user or the market incentive of the user, but you know, the abundance of energy and the regulatory environment that that all sits in. You mentioned the issue of distribution loss, which makes me feel a little bit better about perhaps having a high upfront cost in order to implement a microgrid because, you know, the way I'm looking at it at least, and I don't have expertise in this, but it seems that having a microgrid would mean that you would significantly reduce distribution loss and that you can actually make up a lot of money that is lost in the system that we're currently in. It also makes me think about ways that we can actually produce energy in a more local way. I mean, I could see neighborhoods using lots or using certain buildings for solar panels or finding other ways to kind of generate power. And I'm it would be great if this would also help to increase the productivity of the community. I mean, it sounds like in the case of Gonzales, this could actually make them a lot more competitive to be a town that has its own infrastructure for for getting energy and is able to attract new businesses that also rely on consistent energy. So it, it actually, I think, could be a winning proposition, even though it is such a large upfront expense. Do you see this as something that that maybe could happen with other towns throughout the United States? Is this something that has come up in your discussions around infrastructure in the many towns that you would have visited? Yeah, I, I look at Gonzalez and it's a monopoly market. They're not going to lose money on this. They will pass on whatever to the consumers. And I think the question becomes, are you getting better service from the city and their approach? Or are you getting better service from... PG&E, which is a pretty low bar in, in a reality sense, because PG&E is, yeah. is responding to something else. I feel like the tension here, and I feel like the tension that's going to evolve over the next really couple of decades is going to be between the individual producers of power and the large electric companies. Here in Minnesota, you are the, the electric companies are required to buy power from you if you produce power. So if you go and get uh, your own solar panels, you can put a system in where when you have excess power, it feeds back into the grid and your meter will actually run in the negative. And then when you draw power, it will run back in the positive again. The electric companies are required here to pay you for your energy when you're pumping it in. And so the tension is uh, to what extent will individuals basically no longer need or justify these very large capital expenditures that these electric companies have. Because quite frankly, right now in my little neighborhood, we could all have our own solar panels, our own windmills, our own production centers and be energy efficient, you know, sufficient. We wouldn't need the big grid. We wouldn't need the city. 
the city itself could create enough power, and I think does at times, where it doesn't have to buy it from the larger grid. It doesn't have to import it from Canada Hydroelectric or from North Dakota or from the nuclear power plant in Monticello. Um, we could do that, and uh, and we wouldn't need it. So the, the the tension becomes kind of this one of, on one side of the ledger, you have this player with huge fixed costs with very little built-in incentive for energy efficiency. And on the other side of the ledger, you have individuals who, if they so chose, could be very big players in a distributed way in this system and kind of undermine the economics of the large player. How do those two kind of work themselves out? One of the things we've seen is that the large players have started to get in the business of providing individual solar systems and individual, you know, kind of neighborhood level systems. And, and I actually think that is where the, I was just going to say the energy should be, but that that's where the future of this conversation I think should happen is in neighborhood level or, or very kind of localized level energy production where the people uh, are getting their energy as close, produced as close to them as they can, sharing in a sense in a grid that has redundancies built in. So if something local happens, you can access an outside system. But where there is a huge reward and emphasis on your own personal management of your, uh, you know, your own energy efficiency. My kids are kind of trained yeah, I got Stella who says, if you leave the door open in the summer when the air is on, you're burning money. I said, why? In the winter, when you leave the door open, you're just watching money fly out of the house. And she will actually say, money's flying out of the house. Shut the door. Um, that is an old way of thinking that I had growing up on the farm where that was true. Uh, I think, you know, to me, for her to have that mindset now, I hope that it actually becomes like a generational thing where everybody in that generation, because two decades from now, that's how everything is. We're all attuned to this idea that your own energy use is your own money flying out the door, right? Yeah. Teaching your kids well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe brainwashing them. (laughs) Yeah. Brainwashing them a little bit. It's, it's amazing what kids will pick up. This, this is kind of a, off topic, but when I was when I was younger, me and my little sister used to pick on our youngest sister a little bit by telling her when she wouldn't do what we told her to do, we would tell her that the economy was getting bad and that we were going to have to start letting people go. And this was <laughs> around the time of the recession. So yeah, I wonder where we picked that up. <laughs> Uh-huh. So, well, you reminded me that I should really look into solar panels. I think that we may have a similar program, so that might be something worth doing. I think states are trying to, I mean, the tension with the electric utility is that once you're a big publicly regulated utility, you're kind of an insider and there's a certain momentum to defend you and your market position because you've given up uh, pricing power through this monopoly. And so there tends to be this like regulatory capture of it. The distributed power people uh, fight that a lot. I I can't have solar panels at my place because the sun doesn't work, Uh, but I've definitely looked into it. And you're right. I've got backup power and uh, backup heat and all that because that's how my brain is wired. Um, Yeah, I figured you did. Yeah, but I've been trying to talk my parents into getting because they still live on the farm and they could easily do solar. And I've been trying to talk them into it. And they think it's kind of... 
they think it's kind of like I'm trying to be like go all environmental on them. And I'm like, dad, first of all, you would always have power. Second of all, it would be cheaper for you ultimately. And third of all, you, you know, screw the man. Like, why are you sending them your money? Like build your own wealth here. <laughs> and so I've kind of, I've kind of used that track with him and he's kind of like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like I'm into that. I, I think once that mindset starts to take hold, we already see that industry kind of taking off and I think it will be even, even more so. I love a reason to be more self-sufficient and I'm definitely going to look into the cost of solar panels. Who knows if it will be worth it, but I guess it's worth looking into. Uh, well, most places have financing packages where you're basically not paying. I mean, you're paying your electric bill now and your cost would be basically what your electric bill is kind of going forward. And at some point you would own your own system. Wow. That yeah. would be so cool. Okay. I'm looking cool. into it. Well, we'll leave it at that. But before we conclude today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of this show where we get to share anything that's been taking up our time recently, anything we've been watching, reading, listening to, or just captivating our attention this week. So Chuck, what have you been up to? I started a new book called Fed Up. It's by Danielle DiMartino Booth. Uh, she is a writer that uh, so far in the book has wound up working at the Dallas Fed. I've got this book because I heard her interviewed on a podcast and she was talking about the housing market and kind of the, the interplay between housing affordability and housing prices and financialization and financial manipulation. I think that that is like the, the big story that most housing advocates don't grasp is the way that financial markets are really the driver of housing affordability. She was a great interview and I thought, okay, I'm going to read her book now and I'm about two thirds of the way done and it's fantastic. It's just really good. So this week, I am not proud to say it, but I'm almost done with Breaking Bad. <laughs> Oh, I've so you've not, been still working on that. <laughs> I haven't been binge watched a show in a while. And for some reason, I think because we had such a crazy, we, we had like two weeks of very cold weather. And so I got through a significant amount of this series. I know you still haven't watched it, but it is an amazing show. And I've, I've really enjoyed it even more the second time around. So I have like two episodes left. And I don't really know what I'm going to do when I'm done. And this is the same feeling that I had last time I watched it. So I have to tell you that my kids, we've been watching on Friday nights, WandaVision. My one daughter's favorite Marvel character is Wanda, uh, Scarlet Witch. And so she was really psyched about this series and they have loved it. And we're recording today on Friday. This will come out, you know, on Wednesday but tonight is actually the finale to this series. And they've already texted me like, dad, I can't wait. Dad, come home. We're going to have pizza and watch the finale of WandaVision, which is kind of fun to do that with kids, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then once it's over, what, what's next for you guys? Are you going to pick up a new show? I don't know. Breaking because Bad perhaps? Well, they like the Mandalorian <laughs> and, and I think, let me put it this way. I, I feel like, you know, Disney has obviously made a very conscious effort to have uh, strong female characters in their recent shows. The Mandalorian is a is a male character, but there were other female characters in that series. 
you know, the WandaVision, the primary character is Wanda, who is a very interesting, fascinating character. And my daughters just find her very interesting. The next one that is like big coming out is Falcon and Winter Soldier, which seems a lot more male to me uh, because it's like the previews are a lot of shooting and fighting. And my kids are like, yeah, okay, whatever. I think it's going to be interesting to see if they like that one or not. We might not wind up watching that one. It's kind of opened my eyes a little bit to this like broader spectrum of things to watch. And I, I love finding stuff like this, like WandaVision, which has been, I don't know if you watch it, but it's, Mm-mm. it's, it is well done. It is very smart. It is uh, entertaining and thoughtful. And it's fun to find something like that, that they love that I can kind of share with them and we both kind of connect with. And I feel like as a dad, I've kind of learned something watching it through their eyes a little bit too. Well, I don't have any kids, but I do have a niece and nephew and they're too young, I think, to watch stories with complex characters. But I am looking forward to the point when they can get to the age that that they'll be watching kind of more interesting shows. I will watch shows with them when I see them, but they're, they tend to be uh, cartoons, which can be fun too. Well, I kind of thought we were going to be damaging our kids socially somehow because <laughs> we, we didn't really have TV in our house until they were much older. It was just, oh, my wife and I don't watch a lot of TV. And so it was just, we had one, but it was never on. And at some point they started to be interested and then it just took off and they've become kind of like movie people with me. So before the pandemic, my oldest would go to movies with me. That's one of my favorite things to do is to go to movies. And she would she would go late night with me, which was so super cool. When movies open up again, I'm a little nervous because now she has a boyfriend. And my guess is that I'm going to get squeezed out from my movie partner who's oh, now no. going to... Oh, yeah. No. So I'm... <laughs> It's really nice. She's old enough to have a, a nice relationship with friends and I'm good with all of it, but I'm, uh, I might have to squeeze this boy out if I get, uh, lose my movie, movie going partner. Keeping it together. <laughs> daughter has a boyfriend. Well, maybe your youngest daughter can become the movie buff. Of yeah. The Stella is that's Stella. And she is, um, she would go to like an artsy movie, but not like Chloe, the first movie we went to where we both were like, that was awesome, was the last Mission Impossible. And Chloe's okay. kind of counting the days to the next Mission Impossible. Like it's going to come out sometime this summer. She's super psyched. Stella is, she would want to go to some, not romantic comedy, but something that would be a little more artsy. And I don't know. I love the kid, yeah. but her and I don't. <laughs> different tastes. Yeah, different yeah. tastes. Yeah. Different tastes. Maybe yeah. mom can go to the movies with her and you can go to movies alone. Well, WandaVision is the one that we all like. And that's kind of what's been fun about it is that everybody thinks it's cool. Very cool. Well, that's very sweet. Well, thanks for talking to me this week, Chuck. Always good to chat with you. And yeah, thanks, thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Get down tonight. Yeah. Hit the town tonight. Oh, we're about to get down.